your positive, positive, positive imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready. For your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint. Thank you so much to all of the positive imprints worldwide whose positive actions are helping to fight coronavirus. Outdoors life, uh, you don't need much time. You, if you have one day off, you don't have to go so far to get a great experience outdoors. You just need to get outside and see the opportunities that are close by. Well, that quote comes from one of my past featured guests here on the show, Espen of Norway, who is an outdoor adventurer and an emergency room nurse. He is accompanied on that episode with Kina, who shares her dreams and goals of training dogs for the Iditarod dog race. That episode is Outdoor Adventures Norway, Espen and Kina. Check out that episode. Music by Chris Knoll. ChrisKnoll.com. Thank you so much for listening to this free podcast. To keep it free, please sign up for podcast updates and listen to episodes on my website at yourpositiveimprint.com or download my episodes by hitting subscribe or the follow button on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My mission is to bring the world of positive imprints like today's guests, Hugh and Erling, to you and to inspire you to find your own positive imprints. Hit that subscribe or follow button now. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? Hugh and Erling Kingery are master birders. They began the Audubon Society in Denver, Colorado, USA. For decades, they have been teaching us about birds from not only their knowledge, but their sense of humor. You can assume certain things about birds until, well, you can't. (laughs) Ravens fly in onesies and twosies, except when they don't. (laughs) Well, oh my. Well, you can imagine that bird watching with this couple is nothing short of hilarious. But you also learn a great deal about birds and bird identification from Hugh and Erling. And I'm so glad that they said yes to sharing their positive imprints here on my show. Hello and welcome, Hugh and Erling. How are you? Thank you. We're glad to be here. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. (laughs) And you look so glowing there, and I'm sure you're missing this time being outside with the birds. But I'm so happy to have you. (laughs) And let's just jump right in. You're there in Denver. Were you, what's a little bit of your background? Like, how did you meet? Well, it depends on whose story you listen to. <laughs> I say it was at a party at uh, Erling's roommate's uh, house. And you say? You say, I say it was out bird watching. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and how many years ago would that have been? Oh, about 1972 or 73. <laughs> So, we mar- we married in 1974. So a while ago, yeah. Well, so whose memory is better? Erling's. <laughs> you met, you married, and were you, so you were already bird watching when you met each other. Yes, but Hugh was this wonderful bird watcher, and I was just a total beginner. Oh, so were you an instructor, Hugh? Um, not really, but uh, we eventually. Teamed up, <clears throat> teamed up to 
start a bird watching class through Denver Audubon, <clears throat> and that's the uh, the class where your your brother Robert uh, met us. Right, right. And so the bird watching. Do either of you have ornith an ornithology background? I I went to Cornell and took an ornithology course there, uh, but I didn't really follow through on it much. And then, so how did you get into bird watching, and where did all of this knowledge come from? Oh, I got started when I was a Boy Scout, and the Scoutmaster ordered me, since I wasn't going to camp that summer, he ordered me to get bird study merit badge on my own. <laughs> so here I was, 12 years old, and my mother and I traipsed up and down this stream bottom looking for birds and identifying them out of the Peterson Field Guide. <laughs> and so and then what happened? The, my interest ebbed and flowed. And uh, and did you get your badge? I did get the badge. And did you ultimately get a whole bunch of badges and then do your project and become an Eagle Scout? Yes, the Scoutmaster kicked you out of the troop if you didn't get your badges on time. Oh, very disciplined. <laughs> And so when you were there along the river with your mom and you had the Peterson's Guide, do you remember anything that was going through your head about bird watching? And was it was it something that was difficult? And what kinds of birds did you actually identify? Uh, I don't remember anything about evaluating it. Uh, what I do remember is that we saw one bird that absolutely wasn't in the bird book. And we went <laughs> in and out and up and down and all around it was a bright blue with an orange patch in the middle of the breast and a white belly. Finally, after a week, we figured out it was a leisurely bunting. We were raised using the Audubon books because by the time I was born, Audubon had put out their books. Very easy to use. Uh, I also had a Peterson's book, but I, I loved going out with my family and looking for the birds and trying to identify them and and reading about them, it was fun. And listening, of course, we didn't have the, you know, the books didn't have any way to know what the sounds were like. So, and then, so you were kind of in and out with interest in ornithology. And then, so Hugh, where, where did it come from? I, I can't really tell you, but uh, we started getting quite active after we got married and went on uh, lots of trips with Audubon and otherwise. Oh, so it was the joy of having Erling with you. <laughs> That's a big part of it. And Erling, yeah. what, uh, what... Hugh would never tell me what any bird was because he knew then I wouldn't remember. So he made me figure them all out. And I would beg for a few clues, but he was very tough on me. But as a result, I remember a lot of birds. And that's the that's the, the the technique we use in their bird class. We make them figure it out. We tell them it's not a class in learning to identify birds. It's a class in learning how to use the bird book. Well, there you go. Give us an example of when, uh, Erling, when you were trying to identify a bird. The worst is, I remember, with a group, uh, he they all gave me the initials of the bird, but it was... The Latin initials, so I couldn't even go to the index <laughs> in the book. 
I don't remember what the bird was. I remember they all stood firm with you, never to tell me what anything was. <laughs> but you also, I remember you had the story of the siskins in the spruce tree in our yard. I don't remember that story. Oh, the, the, there's a bird called a pine siskin, which is basically a stripy goldfinch. <laughs> and we had a flock of them come into our yard making a huge ruckus. And Erling couldn't figure out what they were because they they looked like house finches, but they're smaller and they have a little bit of yellow in their wings and tail. And, and she struggled and struggled until she figured out what it was. I'm sure that the siskin would not like being called a house finch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and you have stayed in birding for so long. This was, I mean... Hugh, this was before 1972, and then Erling, around 1972. What made you want to stay in birding for so many decades? Well, it's a fun excuse to get outside and go to beautiful places. And every every bird, even if it's a familiar bird, may be doing something different, or it's it's always a good excuse to get outside. And we like the people that we go out with and that we see doing bird watching. Hugh, did you start the Audubon Society in Denver or was it already there? Um, there's a group that's been active in Colorado uh, since the 30s, I guess, it originally called the Colorado Bird Club. And they changed their name to Denver Field Ornithologists. And there was a proposal by Lois Webster to change it into an Audubon chapter. And after a lot of discussion, DFO voted no. So about 20 or 25 of us adjourned to another room in the, in the museum and started the chapter, founded the Denver Audubon chapter. And what year was that, did you say? Uh, they just celebrated their 50th anniversary. So it would have been, it was, it was 2019, yeah. Would have been 1969, I yeah. guess. Oh, well, so for 50 years, you've been a member of down in Denver, and... We're not involved in the governance of the chapter. I see, okay. Anymore. Yeah. Right. Then Erling, you're, you've gotten married, you're doing birding. What got you interested in doing classes? <laughs> well, <laughs> Hugh, Hugh had already started these beginning bird watching classes, and I just joined in. It's it's been great fun, and so we do the class in the spring and the fall, and it's basically one evening session, an introduction, and then six field trips to different birdie places around the Denver area. And then one evening at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science to go behind the scenes and see all the bird skins. Oh, absolutely wonderful. And and so and that's how my brother met you and my sister in law, Robert and Heather, mm -hmm. met you. And they, they absolutely love going on these birding sessions and they learn so much because one of the things and I want you to really talk about this part because I think this is what listeners need to know about birding is that what you were talking about earlier, you don't want to just look and just try to identify it. And I think Hugh had something really great going there 
when he had you in those early years, Erling, in, in not giving you what where to find it in the book and so on, but to really watch that bird and learn a little bit more about it so you then not become just familiar with how it looks, but how it lives and survives and acts in its, literally, in its own natural wild. One of the things that I really like hearing from Robert and Heather, and then you two really take off and chat, is are your little, your little um, humorous anecdotes about what it is they're seeing. So, oh wow, look at that, that uh, Stellar's Jay. Why is it so blue? Well, it's blue, except when it's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, and blue feathering on birds is not really a color. It's some kind of reflected light. And I guess this is true for jays and bluebirds and those sorts of things. Um, Uh-oh, you're frozen. Okay, well, I'm going to hang up and call you back if you can hear me. So I don't know where you heard me last. Uh, we were just discussing, you were discussing how we gave people hints and information about about the birds, just things that would help them remember. Okay, so... And so the, Hugh was discussing the chickadee that goes... <whistles> that's his song, and his call is chickadee-dee-dee, and the, the, the monomic for uh, the song is, hey, sweetie. But there was a there's a uh, woman who worked for the Douglas County Parks Department, and she says whenever she hears a chickadee sing, it gives, gives her a guilt complex because <laughs> she she reads it as saying she did it. <laughs> oh, that's good. What are some of these other anecdotes or or ways? Because Robert and Heather they just love love the class. Uh, let's see. Well, we always try to to give them some clue about how they're possibly going to remember a song or a call, uh, just because we've heard other people interpret them and thinking think of ways to remember it. For instance, uh, with sparrows, you first look to see whether it has a clear breast or a streaked breast, and one of the most common birds all over the country is the song sparrow, which has a streak breast and a spot. And so Erling always says, streak, spot, song, sparrow. S-S, that's their clue, S-S, for ah, song sparrow. Yeah. And streaks and spot. And of course, the song sparrow sings, Madge, Madge, please put on the tea kettle. <laughs> the call is like a little barking lap dog. That's the clue for that one. And that may work for people. It may not. They may have to think of their own ways of remembering a bird. Yeah, those are pretty good. And it, and it works. So people come back. I mean, my brother comes back and my sister-in-law come back and they remember. Another one would be the downy and hairy woodpeckers. They look very much alike, but the downy is smaller than the hairy and it has a shorter bill. So we say the downy has a downsized bill. Oh, you know what? Thank you for that. And the downy also has a trill that goes down. And so we keep hitting the word down for downy woodpecker to help people remember. So there are some things that I'm picking up here just with those two birds. Uh, well, the field guide is arranged 
so that water birds are in the first half and the dinky birds like sparrows are in the second half, the perching birds. And so once everybody starts thumbing through their book, and we will give them clues about where to go, what area of the book maybe, and they'll get familiar enough after one session if they played this game with us that they can really be quite independent about identifying birds. I, I thought of another one that uh, there's a ground feeding bird with white tail feathers and Erling always gives people a clue that it's down there picking up mother nature's trash. Junk. <laughs> so it's a junko. Yeah, that's good. I that, that's excellent. That's That would be fun. I, I love nature. And different yeah, but once you've done this class of six sessions, you begin to have repeats and you begin to get a good base of what occurs around the Denver area in that season. And then you have something to start with. In fact, people often just sit at their kitchen window and look at their bird feeders with a book in hand. And get started that way. It's pretty hard when you're a complete beginner, but there are often little guide books that are not the entire suite of birds that are possible, but that that are just the most local obvious birds. And once you get them under your belt, then you can see who is somewhat similar. All the Jays behave in a similar way. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can pick out medium sized birds and you started out talking about ravens. Uh, we always say that typically crows tra- and ravens would look alike. Crows travel in flocks and ravens in pairs, except when they don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the when they don't. That, that's, that's so true of, of, of nature. <laughs> so, well, you two are very delightful. And have you ever gone to other countries and studied birds or, you know, have done bird watching in other countries? A little bit. We've had a couple of trips to Costa Rica and one to Trinidad and Tobago. And when our kids were the teenagers, we went to uh, Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula where we did see some birds, although that was kind of a, a minor part of it. But the Costa Rica and Trinidad uh, trips. Oh, we also took our children to the Galapagos. Oh, yes. Oh, that was Which is a trip I absolutely recommend to everybody. And why why is that? It's just because uh, the birds are not scared of people particularly, and you can get up really close and see a lot of extraordinary. And they're a whole different suite of of birds. the tourism there is controlled quite tightly so that uh, you can't spend the night on, on any of the islands except the ones that have towns. And they, they limit the number of groups that can get off onto the islands at any one place at any one time. You see a, not only a lot of birds, but extraordinary things like iguanas and what was it we were supposed to? Oh, we were swimming with the penguins. There's a penguin, a Galapagos penguin, that's a little guy that's right now uh, having 
problem surviving. Uh, uh -huh. National Audubon just came out with a study that says two th what one third of the birds in the U.S. are declining, and some drastically so. Uh, they said that what was it three million birds disappeared over the last. I forget what the time period ten was, maybe years? 10 years. Yeah. Uh, we had a reaction to that because we, we do a, a Christmas bird count uh, in Denver. A Christmas bird count is conducted sometime on one day during a three-week period over Christmas and New Year's and in a circle with a 15-mile diameter. Uh, we, we've done one count for 30 years and it dramatically shows a decline in house finches and house sparrows. And one of the experts on house sparrows said that this, this reflects what he expected, that they were going to decline. They are uh, an introduced species. They're native to, to Europe, but they really have dropped in numbers, mainly, I think, because they started out associated with uh, livestock, horses, and cattle, and now the uh, there isn't so much of that for them to, to uh, access. Well, then, if they're declining, then the food supply for certain mammals and birds of prey would be declining as well. There's some thought that, as well as climate change, it has to do with pesticides. Oh, yes. On the other hand, uh, Canada geese have burgeoned, and sometimes on our Christmas bird count, uh, 50 to 75 percent of the birds we see are Canada or cackling geese. They're, they're similar. And I remember there were some years there where the Canada goose was really declining. And I, I, yeah, the, the various wildlife divisions of in various states have introduced them and they certainly are uh, increasing beyond imagination. Well, so and we can learn from that and study reasons why. So you obviously care a lot about the birds. So for the listeners, what do you find important about birds? Their habitats. So we're not only interested in the birds, we're interested in the habitats from insects to reptiles to mammals. What's ever out there with the birds is equally interesting. And as, as our population spreads, our, our good wildlife habitat declines. So it's really important to work on preserving all the habitat that we can. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. When you have these classes, do, I mean, people are obviously going to be want, are going to want to learn about birding, but is there anything that they can do to, you know, that you teach that they can do something in their backyard to help the birds? Uh, we certainly discuss what are native plants when we're out there and any opportunity to show them native plants versus non-native plants. Because oh, na yeah. native, native trees contain 
an amazing number and variety of insects that non-native trees do not have. We had a house in central Denver, which had one native box elder tree jammed between the driveway and the alley. And that's where we saw all the migrating warblers. Oh, that- isn't that interesting? And the insects, because, and warblers, boy, they're, they're hard to watch because they're so fast. Right. Uh, but this is a species of tree that you can't even buy in the nursery because it's it spreads out in kind of a weedy way and it's uh-huh. it drinks a lot of water and you just can't buy those native plants in some cases like this. Right, right. Yeah. I, I think I don't know how it is in the east, but in in Colorado, I they nurseries seem to promote non-native trees. So Denver streets are lined with maples and oaks and ash trees, which are native in the east and not here. Denver started out, of course, as uh, as a prairie. So any tree, is, except along the stream bottoms, uh, is in a place it wasn't, wouldn't have been 200 years ago. So are the Areas down by the stream, those would be cottonwood? Cottonwood and box elder. Yeah. On the plains. In the mountains, the, uh, there's a, the, a different suite of species grows. Right. The but, if, and... but that's been interesting because there weren't blue. Hugh says there weren't blue jays around when he was a boy. But now we've dammed up, dammed up the rivers and we don't have bison eating the, the seedlings that grow up along rivers. And so now we have this Eastern forest. We also now have fox squirrels. We never used to have a lot of fox squirrels. But the, these trees along the rivers have created a, a ribbon where these uh, Eastern species can move upstream into Denver and therefore blue jays and fox squirrels. And white-tailed deer. It's interesting, only an occasional cardinal Danes to show up here. Interesting. So there, there are obviously a lot of changes in the birds, just like the larger wildlife. The birds also have to adapt to a changing world in which we're re- we are mostly responsible for that change or for those changes. Yes. Is there anything like uh, the most bizarre or unusual or funny event that has ever occurred when you were bird watching? Oh my. I always think of the magpies on that Christmas count. Whenever birds start to make a lot of noise and and different varieties gather up together and seem to be scolding something, you always want to go look. In this case, uh, it was a bobcat. And it was at the top of a dirt bank and the bobcat finally jumped down about 30 feet into the underbrush and we ran over to look and nothing stirred. Couldn't see it at all. Couldn't see it and it didn't move. It was had so well camouflaged. Yeah. <laughs> but we've seen a lot of extraordinary things. Just looking at birds, you see other things Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that, that does make it, it fun. And, and I think that you made a very important point when I asked you about uh, birding 
and what was important about birds. And you had mentioned, well, it's not just the birds, it's the habitat, it's everything around them, because that is what birds live with. They are in nature amongst everything that we see as well and what we don't see. You're bringing up some absolute wonderful points. So every year, the our rabbit brush turns yellow in the fall. So in October, we go out with our chairs and sit next to this yellow rabbit brush. A native. And, which is a native bush. And look and study the butterflies. We have all our books with us and our binoculars. Unfortunately, the number of butterflies has gone down. There was one ex- last year, no, the year two, before, two years, ago. two years ago, there was the most incredible number, thousands and thousands everywhere, of painted lady butterflies. All over the metro area and I think beyond. It was, ex- they, everybody's had them in their yards, whether they had natives or not. There was just this huge explosion. And last spring, the weather was kind of goofy, and it stopped the birds from migrating up into the mountains. And we had this influx of very bright species, such as western tanager, lashley bunting, black-headed grosbeak. We uh, even had a rose-breasted grosbeak, which is an eastern species. And, and bullocks, orioles. Uh, and this happened not only in the Denver metro area, but all the way up to Montana. And so we were all running out in our yards, putting out halves of oranges, as <laughs> well as seeds, anything to feed these poor birds that were stuck. I don't know how we'll ever know if it really did affect their their breeding. It was a very cold, miserable spring, and they were these birds were just stuck. Some people had, over in Roxborough State Park, had 40 uh, western tanagers in their yard at once. Oh, my gosh. They're the ones that are yellow and black with orange heads. So it was a real show for all of us, but it may have been a real problem for the birds. Sure. And Audubon has a sector of researchers, correct? A National Audubon does, yes. Okay. Yeah, that's what I meant. So they provide their research down to the local chapters. Well, to the and to the rest of the world. And also their lobbyists in Congress. And have you ever been able to partake in any of the lobbying? Sort of. <laughs> we've, we've written letters. We, we don't. We're, we're not the ones that go down to the Capitol and talk to the legislators. But we do have local Denver Audubon representatives who are there, and we have a local lobbyist in the Colorado legislature. Right. For, that, that represents uh, the chapters of Audubon in the state. I do know the importance of you know the National Audubon Society and their endeavors for protecting not just birds and other wildlife, but also habitats, and helping to change the way we make decisions. What can you tell people about why it's important to care about the birds? Because if the birds don't survive, we're not going to survive in due course. It means our habitat is so degraded 
and the places we live that were all threatened. And then, in addition, it it uh, improves the soul soul to go out outdoors and uh, savor wildlife and wild places. That's true. We're all upbeat and happy when we're out there bird watching together and enjoying each other and enjoying the birds. It's it's true. And those are two very powerful statements, actually. They're very powerful. And I can think of one of my listeners who actually was a guest on my show, Espen, out in Norway. And you would actually love listening to him. He's He's a nurse at the local hospital there, but he tells people and he posts on social media these amazing pictures of nature and wildlife. And he says, do something for your soul. Get outside and see the world. See what is out there. Even if it just means going into your front yard and looking around, you know, do it for your soul. So, and you two with your positive imprints, and because of your positive imprints, you have been recognized and have been awarded all sorts of different recognitions. And I know you're humble, but but what are, what were some of those recognitions? Oh, I mean, we only do this bird watching for our pleasure and our own information. But <laughs> so, also, also uh, to pass it on. To, to pass it on people. is fun. To share it. Right. And I think that well, that is your positive imprint. I mean, you are sharing it. You have this master birder program and that you created and you are taking people out. And, but you have been recognized. And I just want the listeners to know that, that you've been recognized. So the master birder program is different from our beginning bird watching class. Oh, so let, let's talk about that. So the, the, the executive director at Denver Audubon said, we need a master birder class. And Hugh and I were driving somewhere for three hours and we just made this thing up out of whole cloth. And it's developed into a year long class with 24 field trips and 24 classes and 17 requirements. And it's a very rigorous ornithological study and we get the best bird watchers all over Colorado to come and speak to the class and to lead field trips. One of the requirements, they have to have 200 species on their Colorado list and they have to identify on test trips 100 birds by sight and 40 by sound. Wow. (laughs) I, I call it a college level field ornithology course. But people really have to give up a year of their life to do it. It's a real demanding <laughs> affair. Yes, we're, we're no longer running it. And we, even in the beginning, we have a wonderful committee of graduates they're all, who help set it up. They're all volunteers. Yeah, so you had created it and you ran it, but now you've stepped back from that now, program? We never could have run it just by ourselves. We had to have volunteer committee to help us with the beginning. I mean, imagine contacting all those different speakers and field trips. Sure. Setting up the schedule. So I'm looking at a book which I, I use with my students. We It's it's an historical uh, f- 
fiction book based on when the Audubon Society came to be. Uh, hopefully you've seen it, but she's wearing a dead bird on her head. Oh, gosh. That's by, what started the Audubon. Right. The, the, the By Catherine Lasky, and the absolute wonderful illustrations are by David Catro, which is how Audubon, as you said, Hugh. So, Hugh, did you want to talk a little bit about that? In the um, late 1800s, uh, fashion seemed to like to have egret plumes on ladies' hats. And that spurred the founders of Audubon, whose names I can't think of right now, uh, to form a group uh, to counteract that. And they managed, they, they uh, acquired some refuges, including one on an island in Florida where the plume hunters went to catch egrets and get their feathers. Uh, they had a warden down there. And uh, in fact, the plume hunters killed one warden down there. But anyhow, uh, the movement grew and the fashion disappeared, thank goodness. And then it has become a, a center for, not a center, a, a force for environmental conservation. Uh, the Christmas bird count is another example of this because in the late 1800s, people, I suppose men, went out on Christmas afternoon for a bird shoot. And so the Audubon people decided instead of going out for a bird shoot on Christmas afternoon, they'd go out for a bird count. And now that has turned into a, the longest running uh, research uh, tool that, that uh, we have for studying the tr bird trends. Interesting, yeah. And there are more and more of these uh, bird counts all across the country. They occur in all the states. But right. Colorado has maybe some of the highest number of Christmas bird counts. So that means 15-mile diameter circles that are getting censused. Uh, we do keep track of all the birds that come to our feeders every single day. And Hugh sends all this information to uh, eBird monthly. So um, that's a long census going on right there. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a program called eBird, where people report all the birds that they see on specific trips and specific days. Uh, it's got a, a, an extraordinary number of reports. I think it's got 10 million reports and uh, almost all the species in the world. Oh, cool. Uh, Is that eBird.com or eBird.net? What Dot com. Dot com. E or you can go to or you can go to cornell.edu okay. and look for it. But uh, Catherine, you could post your birds, uh, your backyard birds on this. Well through all of your decades of birding and teaching different generations, because there's all ages that have gone to your classes, you have provided 
such wonderful, not just positive imprints, but you have provided that knowledge for bird watching and knowledge for care and preservation of the birds and habitat and the animals that they live with. And, and so you two are just very awesome. Also in closing, what are your inspirational words that you'd like to share with listeners? Get outside with and it. enjoy wildlife and nature. And just take a field guide with you and figure out a few of the birds. You, anyone can do it. And then you'll be hooked and your whole life will change. <laughs> you know, I know that listeners wherever they are they are going to have so much fun bird watching wherever they are in our world thank you so much hugh and erling for sharing your positive imprints here on my show you're welcome you're welcome hit that subscribe or follow button now your positive imprint what's your pi well a quick note from today's episode sponsor Snoot spray, as seen on the Daily Buzz, keeps your nose and sinuses clear and is drug-free. Use snoot spray daily or for post-nasal drip and drainage from colds, flu, mold, and other nasty bugs, or during allergy season. Snoot spray just donated hundreds of dollars in product to Washington's epicenter of coronavirus, Redmond, Washington. Products available and selling quickly from snootspray.com. That's S-N-O-O-T. S-P-R-A-Y dot com and Amazon. Snoot Nasal Cleanser is everything you want from a neti pot squeezed into a tiny little nasal sprayer. For a one-two punch, order its complimentary mouthwash and gargle dioxy rinse at www.frontierfarm.com.